Determined, a Rethinking Marxism podcast. My name is Ryan Watt, joined by my two co-hosts, Malia Safri and Jared Randall. Hello to you both. Happy Friday. How are you doing? Good. Happy Hello. Friday. Very, yes, it is Friday. It's good thing, too. Good thing, too, yeah. Well, we're here today to provide a brief introduction and then some discussion after the fact of an interview that was conducted between our own Matthew Flissfader, who is a member of the Rethinking Marxism editorial board, and Slavoj Zizek, who at this point, like we've said, needs no introduction. Um, so yeah, is there anything you two want to briefly say before we get into the actual meat of it? Well, we should, uh, uh, you know, as we've uh, noted amongst ourselves before, how, how can we even uh, introduce uh, Slavoj Žižek, uh, very well known uh, in Marxist circles and beyond. Um, and, uh, but uh, Matthew Flissfader, again, is um, on the editorial board of Rethinking Marxism and has published widely um, on uh, Žižek and Žižek's thought and has, you know, uh, I believe had talks and interviews with uh, Zizek in uh, you know in-person venues. So when that used to happen, um, and hopefully again soon, uh, but was kind enough to uh, set this up and run this interview for us. Yeah. So uh, without much further ado, I would say uh, let's check out the interview. I'm gonna start. No, I'm gonna start. not to mean communism, no bosses. You know what Lenin said? It's my old joke. Democracy yes, anarchy no, which I translate democracy yes as long as you know who is the boss. I, I agree have. with that. I agree with that. I'm gonna. So I'm gonna be. I'm gonna take on Lenin um, here. Okay. So uh, Slavoj, thank you. Thank you uh, for doing. So we're doing the first podcast from uh, uh, Overdetermined, the Rethinking Marxism podcast. Um, and it's a pleasure to, to speak with you uh, again. Um, I'm looking forward to talking to you. I want to talk a little bit today about some of the things you've been writing about on the COVID-19 pandemic, some of your thoughts on communism. I'm really interested in talking a little bit um, on some of your ideas on, on Hegel, especially against this new wave or continuing rave of post-humanism and new materialism. But I thought maybe, um, I, I'm really curious about how you've been um, um, dealing with the with the pandemic in your in your own life. I know you're used to traveling quite a bit um, and how you've been coping, um, just staying 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 put really, you've been watching um, any good popular culture or any, any good, I hope you have some good jokes um, to begin. Don't worry, we'll talk a little bit more about philosophy and Hegel uh, in, in a moment. Mm -hmm. um, but um, did you, see, so I'm thinking something like, uh, like Tenet or The Queen's Gambit. Um, what are some things that you're watching these days? You know, it will disappoint you, but I am mostly uh, trying to catch up with what I missed of the old TV shows, because we in Slovenia are part of the civilized world, which means we have Netflix, HBO, and so on, and you can watch all the old series, by old, I mean, five, ten years ago. And uh, the... The last one that I saw, it's a shame that I didn't already see it years ago, uh, was, uh, you know, with Claire Danes, the big anti-terrorist okay. spy series, Homeland. Okay. The second part, 
seasons, I think five to eight, were quite a nice surprise. They are much more ambiguous. Right-wingers were mad against them. Some right-wingers wrote, oh, now is ISIS is even writing scenarios for our TV series. But what I like is that at the very end, Claire Danes, this big CIA agent, uh, escapes to Russia and lives happily, truly in love with her KGB, now it's FSB opponent, pretends to betray her country, but secretly, you see, at the very end, she still sends uh, messages to CIA, you know. And uh, how to read this? I read a good interview with the scenario writer who said, no, she is happy. She is not sacrificing her private happiness to still serve her country. That that's the only way for her to be happy, to be split in this way. You are totally, passionately in love with that guy, but at the same time, the only way to sustain this relationship is to betray him. And this reminded me of what uh, John Le Carré wrote in uh, maybe his best novel, A Perfect Spy, that the ultimate proof of love is always a betrayal. And I find this specifically feminine. A man would be more uh, 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 prone to decide here. You must choose, you must fa- make the ultimate choice. No, to live openly with this contradiction, because usually women are identified with this total surrender. We men, that's the patriarchal myth. We men, okay, we can love our sexual partner, but you have a cause, some, something to sacrifice for, and that's the highest thing. While uh, uh, the woman can sustain this radical tension contradiction itself. I think it's one of the few authentic, happy ending that I've seen. It's not, as some idiotic critics read it, the, the ultimate, uh, the, the, uh, 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 the ultimate horror that she totally sacrificed her private happiness and so on and so on. No, I don't believe in this total love immersion. Sorry, I talked too much, but for example, this is one of the things that I enjoyed, not just because it's politically, at least the last seasons of Homeland. It's in this usual way, much more complex. It's absolutely not that Arabs are simply the bad, the bad guys. And in one of the last series, even the Taliban boss wants to make peace, but it's sabotaged turns out to be half a good guy, but it's sabotaged by a corrupted, by a, 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 a corrupted Afghani general who wants the war to go on on the American side and so on and so on. So that's one of the few things that I really, I must say, that I enjoy. Queen's Gambit, I haven't yet seen it. I am afraid to be disappointed. You know, I have a whole series of, well, TV series, which I like, but I'm somehow afraid to approach them, to really watch them. I'm afraid of being disappointed. 
and it takes great. So that's my problem with Queen's Gambit because from my friends, I heard only good things about it, that it avoids this usual anti-communist trap, Soviet Union, that, and so on. It's not the free West beats the Soviet Union. Well, there's something... She, I think, refuses at the end to be caught in this game. Well, and you so were saying on, about, you know? I mean... I... But you know what I, sorry, what I would like to see? And discovering, following John Kobjek, Iranian novel, cinema, theory, and so on, Iran is an incredible country. First, as they all would tell you in a little bit racist way, they are Persians, they are not Arabs, and culturally they are totally different in the sense that Arabs, I don't want to be a racist, I don't know why, but they translate very little of our humanities, social literature, while in Iran, different friends, so they, I hope this means they didn't lie to me, not connected with each other, told me that you know that the big ideological struggle between fundamentalist conservatives and liberals, and then there are also Marxist leftists, but that's another story, was also fought through different interpretation of Western philosophy. For example, you know that the hardline Islamists use widely reference to Heidegger, to Martin Heidegger, justifying Heidegger, their orientation with this Heidegger's notion of against uh, uh, Western liberalism for a proper home, a proper roots in your own country, while uh, liberals like Habermas and uh, uh, Rorty. Rorty was very influential there. But for example, in other, in Egypt, Lebanon, and so on, it doesn't work like this. So I'm Iran, in spite of all ongoing political pressure, has an incredibly dynamic uh, culture. I'm trying to remember the name. There was that under Ahmadinejad, do you remember a few years ago, there was that uh, film, I think The Separation. It was a big, it played really well uh, in the West about the divorce, the, the, the couple who divorces um, um, and what they do with their, with, with their child. But I was thinking also when you were talking about Homeland and the, the, the way it stages, the role, the, the feminine role, it reminds me a lot of even something like Quaran's Itumama Tambien and the role of Luisa um, in, in that movie and playing sort of the, not, not a, a hopeful um, figure, but the one who is able to sort of see the contradiction, the overlapping fantasies between the two boys. You know the, you know the movie. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, I know it's 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 incredible, it's incredible. So and now they are even. I'm a little bit afraid to go there. They translated some of my texts, not only books, and I was told I'm part of a public debate there. And I don't know how politically it will turn out, but I would very much like to to visit Iran because you know you are among our type of people there. There is no patronizing. You You are not in Iran in a country where you have to explain them basic notions. They are in it. They are in it. What you already wanted to ask me, first I dealt with all those Scandinavian very dark stories, crime, especially Island, Trapped, and others. And what fascinates me there is that 
not only they have a relatively high standard of living and uh, healthcare, welfare state, but even I read today, I don't know where in CNN, just online, of course, that they made again this one of these stupid opinion polls and they, they realized that Finland is the country with happiest percentage of people who feel they are happy. But I like this insight that precisely the people who are happy, who are allegedly happiest, produce the darkest crime novels with horror, family uh, violence, and all that, and so on and so on. I, I don't have a good interpretation how to read it, but I think it's a very naive reading. Maybe you need a space to enact to put out all this disgusting, violent side. You know what this reminds me of? In contrast to people who think that I am anti-lesbian feminist or whatever, already I remember 20 years ago, there was a circle at that point connected with Ernesto Laclau of British strict sadomaso lesbians. And you know what shocked me? They were the kindest persons that I met. I mean, very nice, friendly, and one of them admitted to me that, you know, the shock is that they, as it were, it's very naive reading, externalize all their dirty side. Okay, in sex, we, I will put you to chains, I will whip you, whatever. But then in this way, we get rid of them and then... When you talk, like normally, if I may put it like this, they are again very kind. None of this fanatical uh, hatred of men or so. They were the kindest person that I know, and somehow I, I believe in this. They were the opposite of political correctness, you know. It is as if their message was, yes, we want to suffer, humiliate each other. Let's stage all this in a carnival, in a carnivalesque way, and then we can be peaceful and happy in our life. No, no guilt feeling and so on. No? Yeah, you, you're mentioning you're mentioning Le, Le Clau, and I wanted to actually jump to something I wanted to bring up a little bit later. Um, Populism or what? Uh, yeah. And uh, no, no, I just read, I mean, I also just read um, the, the preface that you wrote to Gabriel Tupinamba's book. And I'm, I'm really interested in thinking about some of the, the, the political context of some of the divisions that you've had with other uh, theorists. So Leclau, Miller, um, I'm interested in some of the ways that the, the political context in Slovenia or in ex-Yugoslavia mm. um, has played maybe in the, ri- the rise of nationalisms, the critique of populism that you present against Leclau and the turn to Lenin in the 2000s, or even some of the political conflict with uh, Miller and his group, and how that in any way um, impacts the Yeah, but they were not, yeah, they were not the same, because as Tupinamba developed it in his book, and I do it the short introduction, which is, by the way, part of a much longer text, where I also get a little bit polemic in a friendly way, very friendly way against Tupinamba. But I think what Tupinamba's book meant to me, 
was that all these suspicions that I had, not only about Miller, step by step, I went back from Miller to is it already in Lacan? And then at some point, is it already in Freud? No. And, and so in this sense, Tupinamba's book was a real revelation for me. The origin of that book was this, I wouldn't say right wing, but a centrist liberal turn of Miller, which uh, uh, went very far. You know that, for example, Miller was absolutely against any populism or any this active social change political engagement. And he gave a very weird justification that when things are getting active, public unrest, social dynamic, then usually Jews, he gives two reasons. One, Jews are usually blamed, so it creates anti-Semitism, and B, uh, it disturbs the smooth running of psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis to function, you receive patients and so on, analysons, needs social peace. But this seems to me a horrible, a horrible logic. Also, at a different level, I was shocked by the simplicity of this Miller's social theory. You remember how the position he talks to is somebody who is addressing those in power, like, we can help you stabilize the situation, why don't you trust us more, and so on. He openly says, we are in confused times, and we psychoanalysts can help those in power to stabilize the situation, and so on, and so on. And it's clear that even Lacan himself didn't follow this line. Miller did a full-scale liberal appropriation of Lacan. But what, what now, let's go to a little bit more theoretical level. Here, our comrade Lenin enters, although we don't, may, may not agree with him politically, but uh, the point of Lacan's failure was always psychoanalytic organization. Lacan is strong in explaining the logic of transference, uh, but what happens once you get a society? There, Lacan tried desperately to invent a new community without a figure of the master, uh, without the figure of a master and so on, but it spectacularly didn't work. Lacan himself remained a pure, absolute master. Okay, the way Lacan tried to resolve this was through consciously introducing the ambiguity between analyst and analyzon. That's my point. That Lacan himself says, and I think it's crucial to take this seriously, that in his seminars, his public is the analyst, and he is the analyzon freely associating. But then in his agree uh, writings, he is the analyst, the master. But what kind of a master? It's clear, Miller knew this in his best years, that Lacan doesn't do the work for us. He produces obscure, ambiguous formulas. 
And then, what do they mean? It's up to us to discover it, up to a point even to produce it, to generate the meaning. So uh, Lacan is a master, but with enough elements of this opening and ambiguity. Lacan is not a master in the sense of simply to be obeyed. He produces almost as an oracle sometimes, again, this woman doesn't exist, big other doesn't exist, obscure formulas. And he puts us to work. It's a challenge what this means. So I think this was Lacan's desperate attempt to, at least in psychoanalytic theory, to make psychoanalytic community function in a different way. But it's clear that it failed again and again, it didn't work, and then I try to explain all this where I slightly disagree, I'm not sure to what extent, with Tupinamba, is now comes my back, bad conservative side, is that, uh, you know, Tupinamba, I think, in a little bit too simplified way, reproaches Lacan and Miller with this uh, ontologization of some universal logic of signifier as a transcendental background, and he wants to historicize it more. Like, and even Lacan's theory of formula situation, sexual difference, and so on and so on, he makes, I think, too much of a compromise with LGBT plus feminism, its usual version, and so on and so on. While I think that Lacan's formulas of situation and all that stuff makes it possible to be absolutely pro-feminist, but without falling into these traps. Which traps? Uh, Matthew, you probably, friends, yes. did you? Read, yes. It's not yet translated. The new book by... Catherine Malabou on clitoris and la pensée. And no, it's, really, it's being translated, though, I think. It's an interesting, very readable, easy 120 pages. And she does something which is nicely written, obvious, but wrong. Her point is that we have, on the one hand, the patriarchal logic. Penis, vagina, complementary, man, ha man has the sticking out organ, the woman has a hole, and so on. But then the clitoris is the pure excess. It's, as he claims, the only organ in the human body which is with absolutely no function, only enjoyment. And that this is the anarchic moment which totally escapes the phallic logic. It's a feminist, and then LGBT. But I think she simplifies too much what she calls phallic logic. I think that in a more complex version of phallic logic, you can... Uh, because you know what I find with all these advocates of LGBT+, and so on? I'm simplifying it very much now, but don't they... I'm simplifying it, I admit it. Don't they often... Right? As if sexuality is in itself the domain of your free self-expression, you, you should be what you are, uh, 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 realizing your tendencies, whatever. But then the bad binary patriarchy comes and 
power relations enter and so on. I claim that, my God, these guys, they act as if Freud didn't exist. It's the strongest repression, of, because if there is a lesson in Freud, it's precisely that there is no pure human sexuality which is not affected by power relations, by sadomasochist distortions, and so on and so on. We don't get a pure polymorphous, whatever, not yet binary, not yet phallic sexuality. No. Antagonism, tensions, power relations are there from the beginning, which means sexuality is true and true penetrated, structured by relations of power. You cannot, you cannot put the blame onto, onto patriarchal power relations. It's also interesting how this works in both directions. On the one hand, they want to presuppose or posit some kind of a pure sexuality towards which we should strive, where there will be no, uh, no uh, domination, exploitation, and so on, which excluded Butler, my God, so clearly in, in her psychic life of power. The problem, the basic lesson of Freud is that, is this what I often repeat, this uh, following Judith, this reflexivity of the unconscious, how you, let's say, repress a certain tendency, but then you start to enjoy repression itself. And this is, I think, an irreducible mixture. The problem is that, again, repression just enforces or enjoyment, or rather produces a surplus enjoyment. On the other hand, not only is sexuality exempted from power, but as my friend Alenka Zupancic noted, power is also often treated as if, like in academic debates now about all that uh, 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 sexual exploitation, as if Power is bad insofar as it's translated into sexual harassment and so on and so on. But if you, if you somehow eliminated sexual harassment, power is not problematized. You know, typically in the academia, okay, if a professor exploits his student sexually, that's power. But Wait a minute. I think I can well imagine a big company or a small company where they ultra respect all the politically correct rules, but power relations remain the same. It is as if sexuality uh, spoils power. Uh, that's why I'm disgusted. I wanted to jump in because I was going to say. No, let's go on. Sorry, very briefly. Let me explain that. Uh, do you notice, I find this so disgusting, how sometimes a big corporation discovers that one of their big names, usually not the very top, but a little bit below, is caught in harassment or whatever, and with all, all the pomposity, they throw him yeah. out. A big step against uh, male chauvinism and so on. But the whole power structure remains the same. Nobody problematizes that. And I often quote, this was my 
original experience in this, in Slovenia, my own country, you know. When uh, democracy came, this left-center party, Liberal Democratic Party, they immediately established an office for women's affairs. And the first thing that office did is they organized a big golf tournament just for women. I know why, because uh, under communism, hunting was the official sport. All the nomenclatura was doing the hunting. With the new democratic regime, it was golf for the top. So you, you see, the hierarchy as such didn't disturb them. Just as, as long as you squeeze enough women into that, it's okay, you know. No, no, I'm, I just think that we should, we can still learn a lot about from Freud about here, but I talked to Mark. Well, no, I was, I'm, I'm really interested in what you were saying about the, uh, I, and I agree with you about the, the role that we, we can understand through uh, the antagonism and sexual difference as reflecting some kind of um, ontological gap. And I'm interested in how that translates into um, political antagonism. And you're talking about the failure to organize community in the Lacanian circle, how that translates even into your own view on something like um, communism as a, as a political ethic or as a formation. You've said recently in the context of the, of the COVID-19 yeah, You will not, maybe, yeah. You will not like me, maybe, what I will say here, because the latest self-characterization that I promote of myself is I'm a moderately conservative communist. That sounds fine <laughs> to me. Yes. That is to say, on the one hand, I am... I absolutely consider myself a communist. What do I, let me be very precise here. What do I mean by this? I don't, uh, I really mean it. It's not just socialist. Everybody is today a socialist. At some point, even Bill Gates said, I am a socialist. Being a socialist means basically, I also care for the common good and so on, blah, blah, blah. No, I think it like, this. I'm not a utopian who thinks there will now be a new communist party which will take over and so on. I think that just with the pandemic, and especially now, when it's clear that the pandemic will go on, it will be accompanied by other global warming and so on, ecological crisis, that uh, uh, capitalism, at least as we know it, will have to change, although all states are cheating. But Somehow it was even publicly recognized. Look, with all the disgusting compromises, but look what Biden did now, the Democratic administration, 1.9 trillions and so on. This is a logic which simply doesn't follow the standard capitalist approach. These are such sums of money. And okay, you have to do things for the common good, which even in the long term, that's my point, cannot be justified through, okay, we will, in this way, we will return to the old capitalist normality and so on and so on. No, that will never happen. Look what is now going on. Again, I know how big companies are cheating here. I know all. But basically, it's admitted that we need some kind of a globally coordinated healthcare. Basically, it's admitted that we cannot afford people starving, that 
basically some kind of even uh, uh, universal basic income is emerging. We know that, uh, at least as a principle, that COVID can be beaten only through global universal action. It's not a point of humanism, sorry, not in your sense, but in the sense that, you know, uh, uh, we care for everybody. No, it's in our own egotist interest. And I'm not playing here what I'm often accused of, the Chinese card. Yes, Chinese did it in some way, but I always like to add to annoy the Chinese. Look, there is a country which is not so small, which has its 40 million or what people, which did even better than China, which is Taiwan. You know, Taiwan also did a miracle. So no, we don't have to follow the uh, Chinese way. But what I'm saying is that, isn't it clear that for the first time, more than in 68, more than ever, a couple of things which still a year and a half ago, if somebody were to say a year and a half ago, okay, let's distribute uh, so many trillions of dollars to the people. They would say, you are mad. It's madness. Let it. No, now it's admitted. Now you will say, I agree with you in advance. If you will say, not you as you, but anybody you, uh, will say, wait a minute, uh, uh, this is just one side of the story. Another side of the story is, you know, the, how the top 10% are becoming the top 1%, the very rich are getting even richer, all that stuff. Yes, but I think that the system noticed this threat and it's now terribly trying to contain, to contain this communist perspective. Uh, one way is this ultra-rich big companies which are for me so dangerous because they are almost approaching some kind of a communism. Look, that's my point, which I often repeat. What, what are Amazon, uh, uh, Microsoft, and so on? These guys privatized the commons. But nonetheless, they are the commons. Like, we talk now because we participate in Microsoft. Most of our books we buy on Amazon. So a common space in a privatized forum is mm -hmm. emerging. That's why, as I always repeat, I agree with those Italian Marxist economists who claim that, uh, that uh, now we have a tendency back from profit to rent. Bill Gates is not getting his money. He's not extra exploiting his workers or who and he's even probably paying them relatively well. No, it's rent, rent from owning our commons. Zuckerberg, the same. The commons of flirting, private conversation, blah, blah, blah. You have to go through Facebook. Incidentally, I don't. I don't have a Facebook account. I don't have an Instagram account. Especially, I don't have a Tinder account for obvious reasons and so on. But what I want to say is that, you see, be, when I said communism, I don't mean some utopian tendency. I'm saying, just look what is happening with today's capitalism. How it is, in a way, in a panic. They knew they cannot go on the way they do. So one solution is this, privatization of commons, which means 
new forms of global social control. The other way is this Trump, Bolsonaro, barbarian way. We don't care, even if people die, let's go on, let's stick to normality and so on and so on. But I think we should never forget this. Now, the second, that these are already reactions to what I call a communist threat. Now, that thing that I hear is, but wait a minute, this is just a temporary measure, like in a war, when things will return to normal. Well, here I'm more of a pessimist. I don't think that things will return to normal. I think we are in it. Not only because, as we see now, the uh, uh, COVID is just dragging on. I wrote about this, maybe it should be interesting to our, to our listeners. You know, it would be nice to study all this through the notions of temporality. You remember a year ago, the most, most popular unit of time was two weeks. When they introduced new measures, they said, just for two weeks, it will be hard, then it will get better. In the summer, it moved to two months. Two months, it will be difficult, then it will get better. Then in the fall, it moved to half a year. Like around New Year, they said, maybe if we behave well next summer. Now, even big public heroes like Fauci, they are moving further and further away they go. Didn't Fauci said even in uh, 2022, we will still need masks and so on. So not only does this drag on, but what I worry much more is this general depression and disorientation. As I wrote somewhere a year ago, the first panic, wasn't it almost a retroactively from today's standpoint, a healthy panic. We were just afraid, like, shit, what is happening and trying to right? But then something different is emerging, a strange mixture of fatigue, I don't care, just go on, to some kind of a depressive permissivity, who knows what will be, let's just go. And it's, a, it's a terrible, terrible situation, I think. And I don't see a clear way out, not to mention the next, the forthcoming uh, ecological crisis and so on and so on. So I think we are, that's my dogma, in the middle of an incredibly important political process. Here I disagree with otherwise my good friend Alain Badiou, who he wrote almost a year ago a text on COVID where his line was, it's a pure medical emergency. No special chance for progressive forces. We just should obey those, in, should obey the medical establishment, follow the measure, and then when things will return to normal, blah, blah. No, I think things are changing so radically now. On the one hand, again, the technocratic large companies establishment, by this I mean the usual guys, these new digital corporations, are proposing their versions. Then, uh, uh, then in Europe, more than in the United States, because in the United States you should be aware of something that, you know, nonetheless you get, you got rid, you succeeded in getting rid of Trump mostly because of COVID. Are you aware of this, that without COVID, Trump would probably remain in power? But uh, on the other hand, it's 
interesting what kind of a new culture war exploded with this populist approach where, and this is the most dangerous version, which we have now in Central Europe especially, much more than in France, Italy, and so on, what I call the new axis of evil in post-communist Eastern Europe. Poland, Hungary, and Slovenia, my own country, where those in power, right-wing nationalists now also in Slovenia, are brutally using COVID to impose control, to block demonstrations, and so on and so on. And this combined with an extremely conservative, uh, 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 I even don't want to call it like that, but let's call it ethical, moral, revolution. It's incredible what is happening. So, but this all is open. I don't see a necessity in it. But what I'm just saying is that we live in an incredibly politicized time. It's not a time for the left to rest, to say, now we cannot do anything. It's a time of, uh, uh, it's a time of uh, 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 emergency. No, it's the time of maybe much more than 68 or anti-Vietnam protests of an intense social, economic, and political change. Yeah. Are we, and yeah. this is what also makes me sad that it is as if the capitalism is still the greatest revolutionary force in the sense of you know, it's changing incredibly. Capitalism is so adaptive. And what can the left do? How will the left break out of this obsession with old workers' rights and so on and so on? For example, working class proletarians. I totally agree with it. But isn't it that the first thing to do today would be to redefine what is the working class. Mm -hmm. It's not just, as in traditional Marxism, the secret model of working class, where usually who? Miners, steel workers, or whatever, the real working class. Today, we have, what about those millions of, I don't know, healthcare, people who do the social care, or... Uh, women uh, working additionally, or even, I agree with some of my uh, Danish and Swedish friends who developed this idea of, the term is a little bit clumsy, but I like it, uh, existential exploitation. Like, the example I learned from Latin America is uh, 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 in Ecuador, foreign companies are ruthlessly exploiting uh, natural resources. Local people there are not exploited, but their environment is gradually destroyed. And even in your glorious Canada, Trudeau didn't stop fracking really and so on, no? So, you know, we should include all these new forms of exploitation, this invisible women's labor and so on. And here, I think, as I've already written about this, that we have two options. One, liberal left capitalist, is to extend the logic of commodification. 
Like, do you know, there are people who think women are doing additional labor at home. Let's determine the price of it. Let all women who are mothers get it. Or even, some people even think we should put a price on, for example, clean water. And then you should pay more, all that stuff. But I agree with David Harvey, my good friend, Marxist economist, who said, no, on the opposite. The thing to do is to decommodify. Not, although mm-hmm. at a certain strategic level, I can imagine a little bit more of commodification in the sense of progressive taxes for pollution. But I don't think this is the solution. You know why? Allow me just to say this, then you interrupt me. Uh, you know, now I discovered one of my big heroes. <coughs> I think it was Earl or Lord of Lauderdale, a British nobleman who, wait a minute, who went in 92 to Paris, joined the Jacobins and become a radical leftist. And then he elaborated something she already imagined this example, which is today more actual than ever, of the false wealth of capitalist countries. He said his example. Imagine a British town with some steel mills, chemical factories, whatever. Up to a certain point, you had rivers, enough fresh water. Water wasn't, in this sense, a commodity. It was just there, available to everybody. Now, imagine... The company, chemical plants, their steelworks, uh, 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 polluting water. So you have to filter water, water becomes a commodity. And he draws attention to something very specific. He says, from the pure standpoint of value, insofar as value commodification is a measure of social wealth, you get more wealth. Because insofar as in capitalism, only commodities which have a price create wealth. Now you have uh, uh, millions you have to spend in that town on filtering water, distributing, buying water. So from a purely market capitalist standpoint, this town got much richer because before free water didn't count, you know. And isn't this our situation today? Water will become... Uh, electric, whatever. What I'm saying is that how something that from a purely economic standpoint can mean more wealth really means more misery. So I don't believe in the logic of commodification. I believe Chinese advocated this for some their own reasons. Don't you think, for example, that the least that international community should have done is to proclaim all the formulas for vaccines a common property. So then, okay, let the companies which produce them to blah, blah, but not the formulas. The formulas themselves, intellectual property, should become a common property. These are things where we can begin doing it. And I think I'm an optimist because I'm a pessimist. By pessimist, I think think the crisis will grow on, ecological and so on, and this will, in the long term, strengthen this communist engine. But as you, Matthew, already asked me once, you know why I call it this uh, wartime communism? Because it will not be that happy Marxian communism. It will be really 
more time in the sense of emergency, you know, like we need now global healthcare. It's not, it's the same as you fight fascists, you need tanks, planes, and so on. You cannot leave this to the market. It simply has to be done. And I think there will be more and more in economy of this phenomena, that simply things will have to be done for the environment and so on and so on. So I think we live in a really, really dynamic time. I talk to my No, I, I agree with you a bit, too. and a lot of what you're talking about. So um, I have a quote here from, uh, from your book. Exactly, I don't agree, because I, with my KGB, I noticed that, that how you said you agree with me a lot. A lot is not all. I, I actually really don't agree with anything you say, so... Perfect. Okay. So, Stalin, yeah, so now yeah. you're, you're comfortable. Because, you're on- you know what I was referring to? Stalin, in his classical book, History of Russian Party, which he wrote, he says at some point a wonderful paradox. With the large majority, the party congress unanimously supported the resolution of the Central Committee. Like, wait a minute. With large majority unanimously, where is the minority it disappears? Go on. No, sorry. I thought I was being like one of the Scandinavian things. I was giving, being polite, and then secretly I'm going to go out and and uh, do a big critique. But I, I'm going to move on. So I have a quote from Pandemic, and you and you've talked very critically about uh, uh, humanism in the past, and I have a different conception of it. But I want to read a quote from Pandemic. Okay, so this is the quote. Okay. So you write in Pandemic, it is through our effort to save humanity from self-destruction that we are creating a new humanity. It is only through this mortal threat that we can envision a unified humanity. I want you to say a bit more about what you mean here by creating a new humanity or a unified humanity in light of your overall, I would claim, anti-humanist perspective. For instance, your common critique of capitalism with a human face as opposed to socialism with a human face. And even in the context of your Hegel in a Wired Brain book, what does it mean to say that we need to constitute a new humanity? Okay, uh, I know that if you take them in an abstract way, these statements may not appear fully coordinated, but I will try to explain my position. First, I hope we both agree that uh, uh, with anti-humanism or post-humanism, I don't mean, and I totally oppose, this type of, however you call it, in both versions, this idea of anti-humanism post, on the one hand, the so-called deep ecological approach, we humans should accept that we are just one of the living species and so on, that there are other species who also have rights. Sometimes they, deep ecologists, almost sound as saying they have human rights, you know. For example, some in Iceland, I met some radical deep ecologists who said, not only animals and rivers, but even, and he referred to some beautiful volcanic valley. She said, he said, sorry, it was a man. If you go there, you see that this is like an organic hole. It should be respected. It's right to be that. So what I'm saying is that uh, my answer to this is a, uh, brutal one, suggested to me by Mladen Dolar or Alenka Zupancic, I forgot, who, who in a very nice and convincing way, uh, 
showed me that, uh, no, don't worry about nature. Nature always finds its way. Don't worry about us destroying nature. This type of post-humanism, where we should remember that we are part of nature, is the most, uh, uh, really the most anthropocentric, vulgar position imaginable. Because secretly, they always think that the presupposition is, if we will, what they call, respect nature, we will, we will maintain the environment that fits us, that it will, in which we can survive. But as I wrote, I forgot in which of my pandemic books, one or two, uh, nature is already reproducing itself in different ways. Like, I think I quote Mike Davis or whom, who says that what is now happening after California fires and after uh, uh, Australia fires, it's not simply all oh, nature grows again. Yes, but it's not the same plants. It's not the same animals. A different, uh, a different nature is filling in those spaces, and we don't fit into that nature. So I totally reject this fake worry for nature. Don't worry about nature. Nature survived even great, greater catastrophes like, my God, remember all those, it's not clear what happened, uh, asteroids or what, which destroyed uh, dinosaurs or whatever. Can you just imagine what nature on Earth already went through? I, here I am absolutely, of course, with the usual proviso, don't torture animals and so on and so on, of course. But nonetheless, I, this is one that I don't want, whatever you call it, post-communism, anti-humanism that I don't accept. And the other one is, uh, the other one is this, uh, 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 I mean this in a very critical way, Elon Musk idea of we are entering a post-human era, we will immediately, this idea of the end of humanity. And what I try to do in my wired brain book is simply to think without being too sure about it what does it mean and remember that in spite of it all in my wired brain the conclusion is a positive one no we will not be swallowed by the machine something like i say it is to provoke people pure cartesian cogito cogito or uh, the unconscious will survive so in these two sense Two senses. I am not, and especially, okay, there is another sense which is not identified with these two. This uh, object-oriented ontology sense of post-humanism, in the sense of the classic uh, Graham Harman line, you know, aren't we humans just one of the maybe very important objects, but one of the objects in the world? So why, why spend so much time on, uh, on uh, transcendental subjectivity and so on when we are just one of the objects? Well, my answer to him is a very clear one. It was provided already by Adorno, who said that even Kant, in a subtle way, knew it, that transcendental approach is not so much uh, uh, a signal of of uh, omnipotence, of how powerful many, oh my God, we even constitute real reality. It's just, it's 
more subtly a sign of our impotence in the sense that we are condemned to our horizon. We cannot step out and see ourselves as part of objective reality. We are condemned to our standpoint. So my answer to Graham Harman is that uh, he is not too modest in uh, lowering the level of importance of humanity, but he's way too arrogant here. I think that his position of treating humans, listen, humans are, of course, at a certain level, one of the species of the earth. But are we aware, here I take the, the transcendental lesson, to what extent the way, even in purest science, we perceive reality is, I'm now making a look at Marx's point, is mediated through social productivity, social relations, and so on and so on. So none of this. Now, where there is a misunderstanding, which please permit me, I cannot survive without it, which bad joke, trigger warning, which because of which when the people will take power, people means me as the voice of the people, you met you will get a first class ticket to Gulag. No. <laughs> Sorry, bad joke. You know what I mean. Like where is the misunderstanding about humanism? For maybe reasons of my history, but you tradition and so on. Uh, uh, I still think my obsession is this one. For me, Descartes, Kant, Hegel, they are not humanists. What they call already the Cartesian cogito or Kant's transcendental subject, there is something monstrously inhuman. It is. It's the source of horror, evil. But so what I mean by inhuman is not something external to humanity, part of nature. I mean that every concept of humanity that we have is already a certain fantasy which tries to control, contain some horror which Freud called death drive, whatever we call it. And I think, but it's a debate up to a certain point, maybe even a debate about words. Uh, but we know the debate about words is never just words. I think we lose too much if we say, okay, but a certain more basic level, it's still humanity and so on. And now I come back to pandemic and so on. My point is a very naive one. It's that I always had a certain sympathy, although they are horrible, for those uh, uh, Idiots, I, I think I quote even a couple of times that guy, a certain, I don't know what, from Texas, who said, I don't want to wear a mask. I will be like a dog with, a, with something controlling his mouth. I don't, like, their idea is that all these measures, quarantine and so on, and basically what he's saying is what, at a more elaborate way, level Agamben is saying, mm. that these measures are not just protective measures, they affect in some basic sense our humanity. Agamben says this directly. What I'm saying is that up to a point there are right, which is why, as you met, you nicely noticed, I oscillate. I oscillate between saying a new humanity or saying beyond. I think that that would be my solution. What we understood till now 
as humanity will be affected. It will really be a new, a new humanity. I'm afraid to think about it. Some people uh, 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 reproach me with, I'm too pessimist, but just imagine how it will change our very human identity if machines will be really able to somehow, not totally, but somehow read our mind, control our thoughts, and so on and so on. I'm not saying it's the end of it, you know, and we can debate, maybe, even but you now, incidentally, moves more in your direction, because he talks about the universal function of humanity, mm-hmm. which he means in an assertive way, not just humanism and so on and so on. So, uh, you see, what are my instincts here? I take this, I even sometimes call it ontological threat. How? What is going on with the pandemic and maybe with new ecological threats even more? How many things like our social behavior and so on, which we took as part of our being human, are threatened by this? Which is why I don't make fun of all those who protect, sorry, protest against masks and so on and so on. I just, because of ontological reasons, and you can accuse me here that I'm too much into some kind of romantic notion of radical evil, negativity, or what, you know. Part of me still wants to say the core of being human is not human in some sense. There is an excess, but it's an immanent excess. It's not some global ontological totality or whatever. I'm horrified at this vision, again, of, 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 of this vision of, no, we are part of a larger whole and so on and so on, you know. I, think, I know I didn't fully answer no, your but question, you're, you're... but I don't, it doesn't really interest me. Now, I, can I ask you a question? Please. I don't know. What do you think this difference, which is in the first approach, a difference in terms? Why not call it humanism? Do you think it matters? And in what sense it matters politically? No, I think that there's an important difference, um, not just in the terminology, but if we think the difference between, so for instance, what you're describing in terms of death death drive and uh, the excess of subjectivity, the inhuman, I think is something that we can ascribe to the imminent dimensions of the subject. But when we talk about um, the dimension of humanism as a kind of a rational interpretation of trying to think through the goals that we're trying to accomplish, let's say, not necessarily in sort of a you know, hippie kumbaya type of way, but more so in this project that you're describing as the development of a new humanity. But the other reason why I'm very interested in this is because, again, um, you, your background and your tie to, you know, the, uh, to Althusserian anti-humanism, um, and especially, as you know, the, the Althusserian reaction to humanism comes in part from his critique of the Stalinian deviation, his critique of Hegel towards Spinoza, Lucretius, uh, uh, and you know, that uh, um, aleatory materialism in, later on. I'm wondering what you think about this in light which of I this. Totally, here we agree, which I totally reject. All so, of the, this so this is what I, I'm saying. So your return to, and in, even in some places, when you talk more so about um, a return to Hegel away from Marx, we shouldn't 
be Marxists, we should return to what Marx did by returning to Hegel. I really am interested in how you think about this, the return to Hegel, dialectical materialism in opposition to new materialism, but also in some ways um, politically aligned, maybe even with the anti-humanism of, uh, of the 1960s, of the French circles. But what would have been uh, politically, here I have a problem, what would have been politically for you anti-humanism? So... Apart from the obvious common sense answer, yeah, Stalin is terrible. Well, no, and so I think on. about I think about it very much in terms of the conflicts of the French Communist Party in the 1960s and the the sort of uh, Althusserian reactions against uh, Garudi and um, 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 even in in conf- uh, the the party conflicts with Sartre and and those others. I think that a lot of this had to do with the, the development of the turn away from humanism. And I think that a lot of what we're seeing today in post-humanism is a, sort of a domino effect of that change, that shift, that reaction to a political problem um, uh, still during the Cold War. No, for me, things are here uh, much more, things are here much more tragic. I agree with your temporal, look okay, temporal characterization that in the 60s, anti-humanism and so on, but here I'm much more pathetic, maybe in a strange way. You will even like it if I tell you. And I once spoke about this with Badiou, who here, he agreed with me. You know that whatever we think about Nikita Khrushchev, the Khrushchev here, he was the last Soviet leader, or his epoch was the last one when the ruling nomenclatura in Soviet Union still thought that, how should I put it, history is on their side, they will win over capitalism. It's the last time, the last moment when nomenclatura, through all the technological successes, uh, astronauts, rockets, whatever, they still believe that they will win. You know that famous moment, ridiculous, but nonetheless typical, when in the United Nations, Khrushchev took his shoe off and started to beat and then said to Americans, your grandchildren will be communists and so on and so on. With Brezhnev, something very sad happened. The nomenclatura basically became, but I don't mean this in a moralistic terms, cynical. They no longer basically, okay, they never believed in themselves that they are really a democracy, Soviet nomenclatura. But they still thought, okay, we cheat here, we are not democracy, but somehow we are a force of progress. They stopped this, which is why I think I even spoke with some East German friends who told me the same thing, that how from late 60s, 70s on, the whole legitimization of the regime changed in Eastern Europe. It was no longer progress history is on our side, even we have, if we have some problems. It's something like, yeah, life is richer under capitalism, but life is also more alienated. You have to worry, competition, dynamic, you got crazy. Why, with us, you have a more modest life, but a certain level of uh, peaceful life, you don't have to worry, you are allowed your private niches. It was a very conservative self-justification, you know. And I think this is what, as with Altisser, 
he was here incidentally this wasn't meant in a positive way this uh, uh, with a human face joke you know because here i was when i was young humanist i when i heard this phrase in yugoslavia it was all present we need socialism with a human face my automatic reaction was hey hey with a human face but behind face it's still an inhuman machine you know yeah. and what i'm saying here is that uh, the attempt today of the new digital technocracy is precisely to put a human face on something which is a terrifying alienating machine of control which doesn't have a human face and i think they have a greater chance to succeed than uh, than communists 50 60 70 years ago because again as i always repeat it the horror of today's late capitalism is that we feel free in some sense you do what you want to surf on the net but precisely in acting in a way which appears to us free we are more controlled than ever i mean i read a good analysis of some slovene leftist i forgot who who said that what today's secret police is able to do without even intruding into your freedom stalin would have jumped out of pleasure he couldn't even imagine of you know because stalin's control was still you look back oh my god is that guy following me or whatever no you see no guy behind you you just freely surf on the web and so on and so on as i always repeat it the most dangerous unfreedom is the unfreedom which appears to you which you experience as your even supreme freedom isn't this not freedom nobody looks at me i go to porn hub i watch all the dirty things there i go to wikipedia site and so on all the secrets this is this is for me this is for me uh, the problem so can i strike back i still don't see what this would have meant namely i didn't lose the edge of your question but i think that what happened in the 60s you know was that although take altisher although he was critical towards the communist party but he was critical i think in a confused very ambiguous way because he at the same time accused i know i was young there i followed it did not altisher at that point at the same time accused the communist party of being too humanist in the sense of bourgeois humanism but at the same time he accused the party of not allowing democratic debate of being secretly to he didn't like to use the word stalinist and so on so i think the tragedy of altisher was really that like he didn't really have any vision now i will be very Pessimist. did he altisher have any vision of what to do this was never for me clear with altisher what did it really mean politically like you have a strike in france you have students protesting and so on okay you stand in front of them and you say i'm a theoretical anti-humanist okay then because the only thing you get from altisher is this gap he even talks about socialist humanism as ideology which is necessary but then you have this 
simple gap between science as non-humanist and humanism. In this sense, she reproduces, I think, the worst of Stalinism and goes against Hegelian Marxism, which was aware that engagement and scientific insight are for Marx are for Marx profoundly connected. The paradox is that the fundamental truth about the society can be set only from a partisan engaged position. And this, I think, gets lost. That's why, would you agree, in his late phase, Althusser gets lost and tries somehow, with all this formula, class struggle in theory and so on, bring back engagement. But for me, apart from some vague sympathies for Maoism, was it ever clear to you to what does Althusserian theory amount to politically? No, it, I mean, vulgar question. And I'll just say very quickly, I mean, um, so much of what you're describing in Althusser here, and I, I do agree with you, really agree with you, um, but I see the same kind of thing being repeated in so much of the post-humanist theory today, especially the new materials that have this, well, they have this focus on... Counters, tell me sorry? This. I'm thinking, so I'm thinking here today. about Karen Barrett. I'm thinking about Jane Bennett. So a lot of, so I mean, but even even yeah. Harmon and uh, and Bryant. I'm thinking a lot about. And then there's the the new uh, Thomas Nail, who is this Marx in motion. So return to Epicurus and Democritus. And a lot of it to me is repeating some of the same sort of emphasis on science, but sort of dismissing or uh, getting rid of the. The, the subject who is capable to grasp it, the, the subject engaged in the world. No, here, this is one of the things that I, I'm very afraid because, of. Yeah. No, no, I totally agree with you here uh, because, you know, did, I, did you notice something? I'm not dreaming that many of these people who celebrate science are, I still have some naive trust in science, are not really great scientists. I know many very serious scientists who are very much aware of the limits of science, of how you need a level of subjective engagement and so on, you know. For example, I was told that uh, Richard Dawkins, he is not taken seriously. Thomas Pinker, by real scientific hardliners, they are not mm -hmm. taken seriously. They are popularizers for them. They are what Althusser would have called here, I agree with him, they are a scientific ideology. No, no, I have much greater respect here. I don't want to make science our enemy here. One thing is science, the other thing. Even now with pandemic, if you speak with serious scientists, they say a formula that was produced by Habermas that I quote here. Here, I agree with Habermas. When he said that what we discovered in the pandemic, it's not many, only many new things about the virus, but we discovered many new things that we didn't know. Now, I mean, Donald Rumsfeld <laughs> epistemology. Many things that we now know that we didn't know. Our field of ignorance of what we know that we don't know expanded immensely. So I have the greatest respect possible for, for authentic uh, science here. 
Slavoj, I want to thank you so much. It's always great to speak with you. And I really hope you take care of yourself. And I look forward to speaking with you again sometime very soon. All right. So uh, thank you again to uh, Matthew Fleisvader for uh, that interview with uh, Slavoj Zizek. Um, and uh, again, I'm back here with uh, Malia and Ryan just uh, to, to talk a bit about um, the interview. Um, and again, this interview took place back in March. Um, so it's kind of interesting to, um, as we've been um, in, deep in the throes of producing a podcast, kind of listen to it again. And what are, you know, I feel like there are some things that look a little differently to us, some, some, pieces that are uh, falling um, globally in different ways, uh, especially having to do with the pandemic and such. Uh, what, what, what do we think? I think one thing for me that really came out is how when, when Zizek says that the vaccine um, should be accessible, should be considered a common good, this, I think, is right there on track with what a lot of people are actually demanding and have been demanding for the last six months. I have a friend, uh, Arjun Jayadev, and another, his fellow co-author, Dean Baker, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times back in February about, about how the U.S. has been had been, at least at that point, obstinately against suspending intellectual property rights to allow for global vaccine access. And one thing that I think has changed a little bit since this interview and now is that there's a little more traction on that issue with the current administration actually saying it is set to review that position as in it is set to review and perhaps modify the U.S. obstinacy to global vaccine access. And that is not like, obviously, how could uh, Zizek have even known about that at that moment? But I think what's interesting now is that because there is this federal rethinking of that, now you have pharmaceutical companies needing to actually respond to that. And there's this meeting that they have in late April with the White House that gets covered by the Financial Times, but it's buried. It's buried on like page seven, where they say that they went to, they met with White House officials and U.S. trade officials, and that industry, the, the pharmaceutical industry was lobbying that, this is quote from the article, giving up intellectual property rights could allow China and Russia to exploit platforms such as mRNA, which could be used for other vaccines or therapeutics for conditions such as cancer and heart problems. And then they didn't respond to any comment, right? And so it's like what, what Zizek is saying in that interview is not hypothetical. That's a real demand by a hundred countries today to, to make the vaccine a global common public good. And now, now we are actually seeing this ludicrous response by the pharmaceutical industry. Like they have 
They have they have that. That's the, that is their legit response and that is their legit justification for not making this accessible. That's that doesn't even stand. Like it's mm-hmm. just ridiculous to me. First off, when we said that we were gonna do this post discussion and we were kinda kind of uh you know, attempt to comment on how this interview has aged at this point, I, I remember at first thinking there wasn't anything too timely about what he was saying. I remembered a lot of I remembered a lot of the discussions on pop culture and some uh, comments he had on contemporary philosophy. Um, but going back and listening and just hearing how much his thoughts were sort of hinged on a few of those arguments, like the one about um, vaccine distribution, like that. Yeah, I had no idea the degree to which the sort of caustic everyday buildup of the news discussions on this were really advancing that discussion pretty quickly. Bill Gates founded, the Bill Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was one of the primary motivators behind championing this idea that no, we are actually performing the best that we can right now and giving up these vaccine patents to other countries would be ridiculous. They simply don't have the resources to manufacture at the scale that they would need to, but we do. But there was footage of an entirely new facility in India, and uh, two of the doctors there were saying, we are ready to produce. We, we could begin production tomorrow, but we're remaining basically stagnant and we're not doing anything because we're waiting on this. And so it's just, I think that that it works on both sides. I think that the article you're quoting might represent the thought process or the conscious, which I think is worth getting into a little bit too. It might represent the actual thought process behind these pharmaceutical companies, but the sort of horrible propaganda campaign that was being mobilized by the news sources that were giving way too much credence to, I think, that argument at the time were that it's not really what was being accepted. And I don't know what it was that changed that discussion so rapidly in the past few weeks. I don't know where it shifted into being, uh, I don't know, common sense, for lack of a better word. Well, I'm not sure that it's it's only, I, I mean, it's only the last few weeks or because I think yeah. there's been a demand from, uh, there, were, there was a demand from 100 countries back in November who knew that they weren't looking at accessing the vaccine until 2022. Yeah. And so there, I, I think that it's not, it, it's, it might be the last few weeks here, but more <laughs> yeah, internationally, I don't think that it was just the last few weeks. I think that there were, I was talking to friends back in February mm-hmm. who, and there was no hint of a rollout program. And I was constantly reminded that, as my parents were getting the vaccine here, that they were there's there was no even pro there was only a program in place in six countries at that point in February. That there yeah, were only yeah. countries that were even doing a rollout, you know, Israel, the US, the UK, that's it. France, Germany. Um, so for it's been, I think <laughs> it's been a demand for a while from countries from the global majority. But now it's a problem for the U.S. because the sort of catastrophe that is unfolding right now in India that I have so many friends and we have comrades uh, in our journal 
who are sick and on really like very ill and struggling with like multiple family members. This catastrophe is suddenly making even the people who got the vaccine a little nervous because now we understand that it's not just about us getting the vaccine, but having this be globally in circulation makes us all insecure, all unsafe, all unwell, because it makes the possibility of more deadly variants that are vaccine resistant just much more probable, right? Yeah. Like, I feel like it's like we're waking up to something that the rest of the world was already woke to for a while. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, uh, you know, comfortably sitting, um, you know, from our privileged positions. uh, Yeah. Um, On the other hand, um, this this interfaces with some really odd politics all the way around, uh, you know, with uh, obviously continued uh, vaccine deniers. Um, You get this vaccine nationalism. it's uh it's it's some strange things going on there um and it will be interesting i think to see how this continues to to develop it's hard to it's hard for me to 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 think uh, okay where where will this be in another three months uh mm-hmm. it's uh will be very interesting hopefully not too interesting um let's hope we are all here to for our second issue of the podcast <laughs> well yeah Our second dose, yeah if... yeah the second dose of the podcast <laughs> come here to get your uh <laughs> vaccine <laughs> against uh maybe we could sort of I, I know that we're kind of running up to the end of where we said we would um end our discussion so i thought maybe we could sort of briefly comment on what he was what he first started saying was an issue of shifting temporalities where he talks about how in the beginning of the pandemic we were just negotiating in terms of weeks we said two weeks and it'll be okay mm-hmm. i'm i'm sure we all remember that and we were all trying to make plans two weeks out with you know friends or you know family whatever um and then it shifted to two months and we were kind of constantly negotiating uh, but then he moves on to make that point that things have changed indefinitely you know they will be completely different forever and it's it's a it's a nice point that he makes and i agree with him but i think it deserves a little bit more discussion here uh while we have a little bit of time left yeah i mean my my own thought when i you know was you know listening to that discussion was actually my my own uh, in this kind of interfaces with his uh talking about science was the, uh, you know, I wasn't so much listening to the Fauci's and the popular voices, but was actually, you know, at all, kind of all along that time, trying to get in touch with, um, you know, scientists um, who, you know, and some of them were doing blog posts at the time, who were actually projecting things out quite a bit farther than the two weeks. So there actually, there was very early on available if you were looking for it a much mm-hmm. more realistic in terms of the science of the pandemic 
Um, not, not to say that uh, Zizek is wrong here. Obviously, yes, in the, in the mainstream, we had all this, oh, just, just wait a little bit longer, um, putting us off, um, trying to get us through, uh, minimizing the disruptions, uh, laying the groundwork for the return to normal, the return to profitability, the, you know, oh, we don't need a stimulus, all, the, all these other things, you know, come rushing in, I feel like, at that point. I mean, I think uh, he, to use Zizek's formulation, there was a fantasy that there would be a post-pandemic return to pre-pandemic life. Mm -hmm. And I think around the time that this was taped, and even, which is deep into the vaccine rollout, but despite that, we understand that, uh uh-oh, there's not going to be a return to the normal, that we are in a new condition of life that is going to extend for and mark us for years to come. And it will change Mm -hmm. how we do certain things like education and relate to one another through travel and you know, there's going to be yeah. there's just, going to be a, simply through work. Yeah. 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 Work. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That the fantasy still holds for some. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And that's, yeah. that's what struck me uh, when you were mentioning when you, uh, you know, this, this fantasy Malia is just what, what will be the next version of this fantasy? Right. Um, you know, we've, we've had it kind of all along. I think that's kind of what I was, I think, I think you kind of said better what I was kind of getting at. There's, there's been the ability to see through the fantasy all along. Um, but we've had this constant, you know, march of the fantasy, you know, for instance, there was, it was never a given that vaccines that are working really well would, you know, we didn't know, um, that, that we'd even be here where we are now. Um, you know, a year ago. So it's very, um, it's very, but then the fantasy changes so quickly once, um, you know, a number of people feel like, oh, we have vaccines now. We don't need to wear masks. Um, and I think where do we go from there? Yeah. Um, you know, when, when there's people who wear masks, um, don't get vaccinated and all of a sudden we get a, you know, a new surge somewhere and you know, what, what happens then? So the fantasy is sort of butting up against the reality of mm-hmm. our life, which is that there's all these ways that it's continuing to shape everything. It's continuing. I mean, schools, it's still shaping schools. Mm-hmm. It's going to yeah. shape schools all of next year. It's going to shape childcare. It's going to shape how we work from home. Who gets to work yeah. from home? What is the status of essential workers? And will essential mm-hmm. workers even be praised and lauded anymore? Because now the oh, that that stopped out. a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That, well, and maybe the fantasy has never been, <laughs> you know, one specific thing. I think that I think that in in the media, it's certainly been represented as a very sort of uh, concrete easily conceptualized idea of just simply a return to October of 2019, you know, or November, a return back to when we were moderately conscious of this thing that was known as COVID-19 that a few people might have been worried about, but most of us were basically able to say that's something that happens 
over there. Yeah. To you know, else. like every, and I think mm-hmm. that for a lot of people, that might be what they're referring to when they refer to the fantasy. But I think for many, many people, especially people now whose lives have been maybe not even irreparably changed, but just changed in a way that they're very, very conscious of. There's a different fantasy, I think, at play. And, you know, maybe fantasy is not the right word, but it, it, every individual, I think, takes certain aspects of what they recognize to be the real world and then constructs sort of an, an optimal scenario where they feel like it's okay to go back outside. You know what I mean? Or they feel like that's a life that they want to be in. And so maybe it was never a case of everybody trying to reach a certain fantasy, but it was just trying to negotiate a version of this that, I don't know, is about harm reduction or something. I have no clue, but it it's like, I know people who were just relieved with the lifting of the CDC guidelines because they didn't want to get into fights with people anymore in public. They didn't want to immediately yeah, sure. have to identify certain individuals as being of a certain conviction and then have to get into it with them. Now they don't. Now there's a certain level of ambiguity as to why are you not wearing a mask in public? Oh, it could just be you don't want to wear a mask anymore and that's your prerogative. You know what I mean? Yeah, it just I would say that, that I would bring it back to more than wearing masks and not wearing masks. There's fundamental ways that the material conditions of our lives, mm-hmm. how yeah. we consume, how we produce, how we go from place to place, how we use public transportation or not, all right. uh, you know the that those are the things that I want to hold on to as, mm-hmm. oh, okay, there isn't going to be a return, whatever, whatever. A return. A, yeah. There's no return. There is a new yeah. way that all of these things are going to be configured and we are going to be, this is when he says we are in it, but yeah. although he says it's yeah. a reference to actually Iran, but he, I think that's absolutely uh, true for us yes. too. And, and yeah, and who who will bear most of the brunt of that? You know, politics starts to really enter here. And I think it's, just, it's I think uh, that you're, you're so right about this, that, you know, this is where also um, as we go forward, you know, Zizek mentions things like universal basic income as, you know, another thing that it may, may seem to have faded into the background because we're all so focused on, on India and vaccines and everything right now. But this is still, you know, an ongoing issue of what's going to happen economically. What are people's lives going to be like materially? How are they going to reproduce their livelihoods and, uh, take care of the people in their lives and take care of each other. And all this is going ha- already has changed so much of that and will continue to do so. Um, and it just, uh, it, it, uh, reminds me of, you know, personally just hoping to kind of, uh, delve into some of those issues more as we continue with the podcast. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully, um, if we are, uh, you know, able to get, uh, for instance, David Ruccio on um, in the next podcast or two, in the next issue or two, uh, to kind of talk about some of these things. What are, what are the ongoing economic issues? And um, as, as, uh, as David does 
very often showing those gaps between the sort of mainstream portrayals of these things. Um, you know, people are going back to work. Unemployment is now down below 500,000 right now. But to, you know, um, okay, what are, what do some of these numbers mean in some other ways? What are some numbers that aren't being looked at and thought yeah, about and sure. so on um, will be important. I think to, we are, we, his interviewing David Ruccio will let up, let us talk about his current project, which is really the way to think about and use Marxist analysis, but in contemporary political terms, right? And mm-hmm. uh, terms. So, yeah, looking forward yeah. to that too. Yeah. So I think with all that, we can um, wrap up this discussion. Uh, thank you both for... Uh, being here today. Uh, thank you also to Matthew Flissvader and Slavoj Zizek for uh, the wonderful discussion. And uh, just very briefly, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so. Follow our Facebook and our Twitter accounts, and you can check out the website at rethinkingmarxism.org. And so everybody, thank you for listening, and uh, yeah, tune in next time. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Mm-hmm.